Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone. Welcome to New Books in Journalism. My name is Jenna Spinelli, a journalism instructor at Penn State and host of the Democracy Works podcast. It's my pleasure today to be speaking with Jody Jackson, the author of You Are What You Read, Why Changing Your Media Diet Can Change the World, which was published in 2019 by Unbound. Jody, thank you for joining us on New Books in Journalism. Thank you so much for having me. So from what I understand of your background, you are not a, a journalist by training, did not come up through the, the ranks of the newsroom, so to speak. Um, can you start off by, by telling us a little bit about your background and uh, how you became interested in the news as, as a topic of study? Yeah, of course. I mean, I, I as many people um, do, you know, I read the news daily or watch the news daily. And I found myself getting to the point where I actually couldn't bear to hear another news story because I found it so depressing. Um, And I was beginning to feel hopeless and helpless about the state of the world. And I remember when I stopped watching the news, people labeled my decision as as naive or weak. Uh, I was called ignorant. And um, some people thought my behavior to tune out was extreme, you know, that I was at fault in some way. But I quickly came to realize that perhaps it, it wasn't necessarily me that was at fault. There was a fault with the industry. Um, and so I wanted to understand this better because if I'm motivated to stay engaged, but I'm attracted to the idea of ignorance being bliss, how many other people felt the same? And I realized that finding the news too depressing was the biggest reason for audience disengagement, not because people weren't interested. Um, and so I asked, you know, what would it take to keep me informed in a way that engaged and empowered me. And this is when I came across the concept of solutions journalism. And I began introducing it into my own media diet, so to speak. And it really, um, it connected me not only back to the mainstream news narrative, but it also connected me back to society and my potential within it. And having experienced such a noticeable change in myself from changing my media diet, I wanted to understand it on a collective level. So my research has come completely consumer side and I went back to university um, to understand the impact of the negativity bias on our mental health and our social functioning and, and created new research to look at what happens when we include solutions. Yeah, and you, uh, you know, you you spoke of that that notion of of helplessness before you you argue in your book that the 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 media landscape as it as it currently exists cr- reinforces this this notion of learned helplessness. Um, can can you talk um, a little bit more about what that looks like? Um, well, I I know in the UK and certainly in the US the the news organizations are governed really by the mantra of if it bleeds, it leads. So we have an industry that hugely overrepresents the problems and, and they're, they're absolutely real, these problems that we're facing, but by, um, by magnifying them 
and um, over-reporting on them at, at the expense of reporting on progress, peace building and development, we're left with the impression that the world's broken beyond repair and as if it's in a rapid state of decline. And not only that, but when we're not given the opportunity to see the kind of growth that could happen in, in you know, against this backdrop of challenges that we're facing, we are left with the impression that these problems are just too big to solve because we're not witnessing anybody solving them or even attempting to solve them. And so that, um, that feeling renders us helpless um, and it actually prevents us from taking constructive action because we feel like our efforts are futile. Right. Yeah. And, and in fact, it can, I think in some cases, lead to more, more anger, more kind of a, a punitive approach. And there's, there's been some, some political science research to suggest that how that, if it bleeds, it leads mentality actually leads to more people going to jail, more convictions, all these, these kind of things. And, you know, on and on down the line. Like a um, self-fulfilling prophecy. Sure. Mm. Um, but, you know, that, uh, you know, I think that that the the notion that we need more of a, a solutions oriented approach or that we need to find some sense of, of balance between what's working and what's not that all really, it's, I would imagine, and it sounds like from your research can can resonate with an individual news consumer, but might be a bit of a harder sell to the news organizations themselves, given the the, the profit motives and the way that these organizations make money. So where does that all figure in here? Well, interestingly, um, it's becoming increasingly attractive to news organizations to include solutions journalism because of the declining readership. Um, And as I said, the biggest uh, reason for audience disengagement is because people find the news too depressing. And the second biggest reason is because people feel that their actions aren't able to make a difference. There was a study Um, last year by the Reuters News Institute that did a huge survey of of consumer response to the news. And they found that 32% of people in the UK actively avoided the news. And this is an increase by 11% on the year before. And they were the two biggest reasons for that. So when you actually look at how people engage with solutions, um, the fact that it it not only helps um, re-engage consumers, especially younger audiences, Um, which gives you a better lifetime value um, if people do connect with your brand and what you're doing and why you're doing it and including solutions journalism as part of your journalism philosophy. Um, It can actually increase your readership, but not only that, you can better monetize them. So there's been a a, a load of um, research, which I'm presenting at the moment to news organizations to show actually how um, people through subscription services or even um, donation or paying per article, how solutions-focused journalism increases um, engagement and monetization of their audience. And not only that, but when you look at advertising as well, which is how a lot of news organizations rely on their income, um, people are better engaging with the brand and are more likely to purchase when it's placed next to positive or solutions-focused content. So there's actually a growing business case for news organizations to do it in terms of uh, monetary incentives. But not only that, in terms of um, in terms of their journalistic integrity, where there's a growing framework around solutions journalism, you know, previously it was considered to be puff pieces um, that were kind of feel good stories that were informationally irrelevant to the mainstream stories that were going on. And what's happening is this this change in understanding of what solutions journalism is. 
You know, it's not these feel-good fluffy stories. It's rigorous journalism that reports critically on tangible progress being made in order for us to understand how issues are being dealt with. Um, so it's not celebrating the solution, it's reporting on it. And, yeah, get, oh, go ahead. Sorry, no, 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 please go ahead. No, I was just going to ask, um, can you give us an example of, of what that might look like uh, thinking about, I don't know, a story maybe like climate change or, you know, here in the in the U.S. as we record, we are in the middle of, of the impeachment proceedings. Um, you know, what what is a, a solutions oriented approach to to some of these issues look like, I guess, to, to the extent that there there can be one, maybe maybe every issue is is not applicable to this approach. Um, I mean, there usually is, because wherever there's a problem, there's usually someone somewhere doing something about it. So that's really where the story, you know, the st- traditional journalism tends to stop at the problem. And what solutions journalism does is look beyond it to see, well, what happens next? Um, and so it's not, um, you know, it's not isolated in what we can and can't report on in solutions. Uh, when you're looking at climate change, you're not necessarily saying, well, what's going to solve it? But you can say, well, what are people are doing to address it? And then you can get critical, you know, is it working? Is it scalable? Is the same problem that we're facing here the same as we've got over there? Um, And so it's really adding informational value that gives people something to be able to do something with. So when you're talking about climate change, you can look at the initiatives that are taking place, whether it's um, from the ocean cleanup to recognizing that actually rivers are are the highest point of pollution. And so if we're tackling what kind of methods are we tackling in river pollution and is that preventative for the ocean? Um, and then what we can do on a more individual basis and understanding the impact of our actions and how that fits into the wider context of this um, problem that we're all collectively facing. So it's not, you know, you're not looking for the silver bullet story that makes something go from bad to good, but you're looking at these incremental changes that are actually bringing about progress and understanding the driving forces behind why that is. So you're reporting more on the process of change rather than the person instigating it. Right. And, and I know you're, you're working with, with media organizations all the time. Your, your book lists, lists a couple of outlets in particular, the, the Solutions Journalism Network and, and others that really specifically take this, this type of approach. But are you hearing this, this message get through? I guess the, the question I'm really thinking about is at what point does, solutions journalism just become journalism and not like this other thing that we have to classify in a a separate way? I mean, that is a big question and one that I'm looking to solve at the moment. I agree. I think, I think journalism is, um, you know, helping us understand the environment that we live in and providing useful information to be able to empower us to act as citizens, whether that's looking at problems or whether that's looking at solutions, both for me are of equal value. It's just one of them is so hugely underrepresented in the mainstream narrative that that's the one that I'm really driving um, my efforts towards campaigning for so that it has an increased presence. But I agree with you, you know, it should just be journalism, but because it's not, it's, you know, creating its own framework, it's developing its own movement, it's gathering its own momentum almost to prove itself that it can be a contestant, not against, but alongside problems-focused journalism so that we can have a much more um, accurate narrative of the world by, by having a much more 
um, steady hand with the mirror that we hold against it. And that includes solutions. Right. And, and so do you do you see that that this message, the, the research and the work that, that you and others are doing is is having an impact on some of what we might think of as as mainstream news organizations? Definitely. Yeah, I think I mean, I, I started this about 10 years ago and the I mean, I couldn't even get meetings with some of these news organizations that I'm sitting down with and discussing seriously the implementation of how they would actually logistically feature this kind of news. Um, and it's it's changed for a number of reasons, not least of all, because consumers are better heard than they've ever been. There's a craving for it because there's an increased starvation of it. Um, and it's beginning to gather a momentum that's actually difficult to stop. And so I think it's 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 moving towards a tipping point where there's enough news organizations specializing in it to show good demonstration of what it looks like. And they've kind of created the test case that's proven, as I said, not only can you build an audience around it, but you can better monetize them. And it's it's shifting through to more mainstream news organizations who are um, interested in in the the application of it, not only for its uh, monetary value, but also for the journalistic integrity that it brings to their organization. Right, right. And I'm thinking also about like nonprofit news organizations. It, it seems like what you know what you were saying before about that focus on creating a community and not maybe relying as heavily on, on ad revenue. Um, you know, it, it seems like that that might be a good fit for this type of approach and, and you know, maybe a place to, to kind of get the ball rolling or, or keep it rolling. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I think that um, there's been, uh, there's on my, on my website, you are what you There's a starter kit there that lists a lot of news organizations that are doing solutions journalism very well. So it's a good example of the kind of journalism that we're talking about. And if people are interested in, um, you know, wanting to be more informed on how, these problems are being addressed. This is a good place to start. And you can see on there, there's a huge mix between, like you said, these kind of nonprofit news organizations um, and more, you know, much larger mainstream news organizations, both in the US and in the UK. Right. So the the other part of this is is social media platforms. Um, you know, there have been studies by by Pew and others that something like two-thirds of of Americans, at least I'm not sure how how this compares to to throughout the world, get their news primarily from social media. So mm. um, do the the social media the do the the social media platforms or the, the people putting content on those platforms have a responsibility uh, to to consider a a more solutions-focused approach as as part of the the content that they present? As news organizations posting on social, do you mean? Yeah, I guess I'm asking what what responsibility do the the social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, Google have as far as making sure that this, this type of content is in their algorithm that's served up? to users when they're going to those platforms for news? It's interesting. It's not an area that I've specifically um, necessarily focused on my research. Um, it's been more kind of the message rather than the medium itself. But interestingly, recently, um, Google have actually changed their algorithm to prioritize or at least um, give a level playing field to solutions-focused content. They're actually, the way that they've changed their algorithms is that they 
um, do help promote that kind of content. So again, it further incentivizes news organizations um, to create it because it's looked better upon by, you know, the, the Google bots that search whatever it is that you're doing and decide whether or not they like it. Um, so that's been, again, you know, all of these kind of things, as I said, this momentum is growing and this movement is happening um, and it's, it's, it's going at a pace with things like this and the fact that social media, as you mentioned, and I know this is slightly different, but um, social media has shown that people, that, that positive content is more viral than negative content. Even though negative content might get more att- attraction straight away, positive content is shared uh, more widely and it actually travels further over a longer period of time. So again, that's a further incentive, especially as you mentioned, two thirds of people, and it, it's mirrored the same here in the UK, get their news from social media platforms. It further sen- incentivizes news organizations um, to create this kind of content. Right. So where does the, the notion of, of objectivity fit in here? You know, I know that there's uh, been been some more critique of that model, particularly since 2016 with, with the election of, of Donald Trump and with, with Brexit, some, some notion that, you know, you know maybe, maybe journalists, journalists should do more or, or go back to doing more than just saying, okay, this is the, you know, these are the facts where we're just a, a neutral observer um, and so I think, you know, maybe one, one critique of this solutions model is that you, you, you could see it as just choosing to report only, only on the positive and it wouldn't necessarily square with that, that notion of, of objectivity in journalism. And I guess I'm wondering how, how you square those, those two things or, you know, what, what role objectivity plays when thinking about the, the solutions approach. I mean, I would say it enhances it enormously because the the idea that it it somehow masks reality to me is absurd, considering the fact that we have this very obvious, if it bleeds, it leads news mentality. There is a lack of objectivity with the way in which we prioritize our news content at the moment, and it's heavily geared towards failure. And what we're talking about when we're, when we're saying we need to report more on solutions, it's not to swing the pendulum in the other way. And it's in no means a denial um, or an ignorance to problems because they're hugely valuable. You know, they, they create a kind of discomfort in us when we see di- injustice that, in, that, that forces some kind of action that puts pressure on people to do something about a particular issue. Um, you know, it's helped right many wrongs and helped society progress. So it's not a case of saying that we shouldn't have it. We should. But just because something's good, it doesn't mean its benefits are endless. And this kind of overwhelmingly narrow focus on failure has moved from being helpful to becoming harmful, where we have such an abundance of media coverage um, over so many different platforms in so many different guises that means we could be tuned in continuously into this very, very narrow narrative. So when we're saying about including solutions journalism into this picture, it's not to displace it, it's to balance it, to create a much, much more accurate worldview that's better lined with context and balance that we currently have at the moment. So I agree with you. If I was to say, yeah, we should only hear about solutions, of course, that's not objective, um, which I, again, don't really believe exists in the newsroom anyway. And I think actually more trust would be placed in the media if we were more transparent about, it's not to say we shouldn't strive for those ideals, we should but it's about recognizing their shortcomings rather than just constantly defending them. 
um, as if it, they are somehow fundamentally existent in news organizations because they're not. But I would say that solutions journalism as a principle is hugely valuable in creating a lot more objectivity than we currently have. Right. And and picking up on that, that notion of, of trust and of institutions, I, I think you see in the book, there's this kind of cycle that happens where, you know, the, the more we read about how an institution, whether it's, it's, it's something in the government or in, in business or in civil society, the more we read about how these things are failing, it kind of leads to this this vicious cycle of of distrust which further further erodes confidence and just kind of spirals on and on downward mm. um can can you just just talk a little bit more um about what what that that argument looks like and and how the the solutions focused approach might change that course um there's a book that explains it much better than my short summary in 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 my book and it's called The Vanishing Voter um by Thomas Patterson I think and I I recommend if you did want to kind of deep dive into that then I would recommend reading that for sure. Um but I think the kind of and I understand the adversarial nature that the press have with politics as a way to hold them to account and I uh you know I'm not I totally appreciate the value of of doing that and then the necessity of doing that. Um so you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish to undermine that. I think that when you're talking about solutions journalism, it probably lies more outside of politics than anything else, because you often find, although obviously everything comes back to politics and policies and how people, you know, governments addressing these huge systemic issues that we have in society, but actually you usually find people most affected by the problem are usually the people who are um, solving it in some way or another. And, and, and that usually happens at grassroots level and outside government intervention. Um, you know, obviously policies can help or hinder it, but that tends to be where the activity is. So when it comes to reporting on solutions, um, it probably lies more outside the political space, which it probably should, you know, because otherwise it compromises other, other things that it's there to do. Um, so you you also draw in the, the book shifting more so to, to the the consumer side of things. Um, you you talk in the in the book about um, the the food industry and, and how that might be a model for how this this type of change and approach can happen. Uh, what what does does that look like, and, and and what lessons can journalism take from the food industry? Um, well, I think my my comparison with that really is looking at how powerful consumers are in creating change in industry. And one of the ways in which consumers really claim their power is by becoming conscious about their decisions. Um, so, you know, when you look at the food industry, for example, once people are educated on the impact, you know, our immediate desire as human beings is to eat sugary foods and fatty foods. And that goes back through our kind of biological need um, for survival which was that sour foods tended to be poisonous, which is how we developed a preference for sweet. And we went through periods of starvation. And so actually fatty meat was really good insulation that kept us, uh, you know, that gave us energy and, and gave us a reserve that we could go into between these inevitable lean periods. And what's happened with the changing food environment is we now have an abundance of food. You know, we no longer have these periods of scarcity, but our biology hasn't really caught up with our reality. And we still have these cravings for fatty and sugary food. 
And the industry has been able to, um, you know, really monetize our cravings and become a thriving industry. But when we are informed about the impact that that has on us in the long term, we're able to reason past our immediate desires and make decisions that provide longer term benefits. So we can avoid the kind of food that we're initially craving um, for something else that we know um, is going to provide us with, with more benefits. And it's the same with the news. You know, these kind of short style sensationalist news stories um, that either prey on our morbid curiosity or prey on our need for gossip or, um, you know, show us threats that previously and currently we, we pay attention to for survival. You know, we need to know about the threats and the dangers that we're facing in order for us to avoid them. But as I said, you know, our biology hasn't caught up with our reality and the level of threats that we're facing, or at least that we're told about that we're facing, are far more than we've ever had in our history um, because we're told about everybody's threats that everybody's facing at every point in time. And so it's moved again from the point of becoming helpful to becoming harmful. And there's this kind of monetization of exploiting our biological need or preference for bad news. So my work really seeks to educate the consumer of saying, hey, you know, what this is doing for us in the short term might seem like it's helpful or it's satisfying a craving for what we think might be helpful. But actually, it's really creating these damaging, long-lasting effects like um, anxiety, pessimism. Um, we mentioned earlier, but um, helplessness. Uh, it increases feelings of contempt and hostility towards other people. It increases our feelings of fear, which can make us withheld, uh, withdrawn and unhelpful because that's a, a, an emotion that's generated to protect ourselves. And so we actually care less about other people. And, um, you know, we can become desensitized. They lose their shock value. All of these things, actually, you know, when you look at this longer term down the road, it's not as good as you might think. And when we're educated on that, we can make different choices. And when we make different choices, the industry ends up providing something different to match those choices. So I'm really trying to empower the consumer not only to understand the impact that the news has on them, but to understand the impact they have on the industry and really sort of circling that loop to, to hopefully create something more constructive for everyone. Right. So let's say, you know, someone listening to this podcast said, thinks, okay, I want to give this a shot and, and, and try to change my relationship with the news. What's, what is the, the best way to start? Is it to, you know, maybe as, as you said, you did kind of go cold Turkey for a little <laughs> while and then start to, to reintroduce things from there or, you know, how, how do you, how do you get started? I mean, everybody's different. And so I, I wouldn't necessarily have one prescriptive thing, but two things I would certainly say would be good for you is read less. You don't need to tune in. I think the average person spends uh, between 60 and 90 minutes a day reading the news. Um, and you just don't need to know. You just don't need to tune in that much. It's not, it's not providing the kind of information you need to actually conduct your daily lives effectively. Um, so I would say tune in less and go more in depth. You know, these kind of news stories, if you're surfing, if you're surfing the news, you're surfing the waves, you're at the top level, you're seeing all the bubbles on top of the surface, but you're not necessarily really driving behind what's causing them. So I would say tune in less, go more in depth and make sure you include solutions as part of that narrative when you're doing that exercise. And just make the whole process more conscious. You know, we're constantly bombarded through social, through radio, through television even walking through a shop in print, you know, you 
you've got it everywhere. Be more deliberate about what you choose to let in. Right. And there's, there's also that like the, the sense of FOMO, I think, right? So if you, if you don't follow the, the latest headlines, whether it's, it's politics or, or celebrity news or, or what have you, like you're gonna, you're not, you know, maybe if people at the office are talking or, you know, wherever your, your friends, you're, you're out having a drink, whatever you're, you might not know what, what people are talking about. Um, how do you, how do you deal with that? Or, you know, is it something that, that kind of goes away over time that the more you kind of reinforce these, these habits? I, I totally appreciate there is that social pressure um, to stay informed. And like I said, you know, when I stop, people call me ignorant and naive and, you know, it's being, being, um, there's, there's an element of being, you know, just being tough enough to take it but also flipping the narrative because actually you find, and there's a great book as well that, that demonstrates this called Gapminder, is that people that read the news are often more uninformed than people that don't read the news <laughs> because of this distorted picture that it creates by, by this over-representation of failure. People actually think that the world is in a much worse condition than it currently is. And when you look at the progress that's taken place over the last century, the last millennia, um, the way that society's progressed really isn't reflected in the news narrative and our current um, existence and the context that humanity operates in at the moment really isn't understood when you watch the news. And so you have people, um, you know, when you're taking, when you're taking quizzes about the condition of its world, of the world, sorry, whether it's about uh, mortality rates, crime rates, um, poverty rates, you know, these huge, global indicators of where we're at currently, you find that people that read the news are often, you know, ill-informed in a way that people who are uninformed aren't. And actually, people that are uninformed might guess, and they'll probably get the answer right more often than people that read the news, because the people that read the news make an educated guess, but they're horribly misled down a much darker version of the world than those that don't. Right. Um, last thing here as we, we, we start to wrap up, you know, I know that, um, people who, who listen to this podcast might be journalism instructors or, or journalism educators. What, what place should solutions journalism have in, in a a curriculum, say for a, a, a reporting class or, you know, where, where should it live in kind of journalism education? It should definitely have a module. I think that as far as training goes for journalism, like you said, at what point does it just become journalism? You know, we can we can label it problems focused or solutions focused, but at what point is it just journalism? And I think one of the key things in getting there faster would be to actually have it taught in education. You know, we're running training programs at the moment with a lot of um, professionals and it's incredible the interest that's happening on a, on a professional level and, and the lack of understanding, you know, how they've gotten to this point in their career. And some people are seasoned veterans of journalists that we're working with and other people are maybe just starting their career. Um, but despite your experience that you've had in the journalism industry, when it comes to solutions journalism, everyone's still in their infancy. And I think that if we're able to get it at an earlier stage, introduce it into school syllabuses and teach it as a standard practice of journalism, you'll see that reflected in the newsroom much quicker. Yeah. So, as, as for the the uh, reporters that that you're working with, uh, you know, seasoned veterans, 
and, and the like, is there like an unlearning process that, that, that has to happen? Or, or how do you find that they change their approach as far as their, their reporting of a story or, or how they write it even? There's not a huge, I mean, the thing is, it feeds into all of the same journalistic principles, you know, the who, what, where, when, why. Um, I suppose you could, you could say it as it has a sixth, which is the what next. Um, but it still has all of the same um, journalistic rigor and, you know, investigative um, integrity that, that the other stories have. It's just you're focusing on something different. So it's, it's, it's not so much changing the way in which we create journalism. It's about widening the media lens to, to say, well, what's included in that narrative? What are we shining the light on? Because at the moment, it's very much, you know, you shine a light on the failures to try and put them into sunlight, expose them, and society will take them away. And you're fast learning, well, that's not really the case for many reasons, not because, not least of all because people are tuning out. And actually, if we shine a light on what's working and we understand that better, um, and we have the same exact principles as to how we investigate that, how we critique it, how we understand its limitations as well as um, its applications, all of those things, there's no actual difference in the style of reporting. It's just that you're changing what you're reporting on. Um, so that we're able to have that same kind of intellectual discussion about solutions rather than just problems. Right, right. I'm just thinking about um, again going back to that 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 concept of a of a news diet. You know, I, I know that um, again this this balance might look different for everyone, but you know, given the fact that we are not in in a place yet where solutions journalism and journalism are are kind of one and the same. I mean, how can you even say you know how much of of someone's overall news consumption knowing that you know time is 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 limited for everyone um how how much of someone's overall news diet should be this this type of approach versus the more more problems oriented media? It's a good question. I feel like with problems-focused media, so with problems-focused media, I would say don't get it online. Get it in print because if you get it in print, you don't have the kind of hyperlinks where you can fall down this kind of tunnel of endless searching and finding the next bit and this bit and that bit of detail. Um, so I, I subscribe to The Week, um, which is a news publication over here. I think you've got it in the U.S. as well which is kind of an aggregation of the, the week's most important news headlines. And they all tend to be, they do, I, they, it does have elements of solutions-focused news reporting, but it tends to be traditional media. You know, it is focusing on what's failing. Um, so I have that as my weekly news um, bite. And then on top of that, I supplement it. I subscribe to a newsletter called Future Crunch, which I get biweekly, which is a summary of things that you don't often hear in the mainstream media, um, which summarizes some of the, and it's done really well, um, and it links out to other articles, but it sort of summarizes some of the progress that's taken place, um, you know, in those two weeks that you wouldn't have heard about from reading something like The Week. So that, for me, kind of tends to be enough. Um, also, through my social media, I subscribe to channels that, um, you know, actively push for more constructive journalism content. The other thing that I do is I subscribe to um, particular journalists in the correspondent. And this is where I kind of come back to if people were a bit more transparent about the news production, 
rather than simply claiming objectivity or going even further in the motion of objectivity where they then don't vote because um, it it would then undermine their objectivity. You know, that's a nonsense. It's people reporting the news. You are people. You're not, um, you're not exempt from the psychological processes that happen as a part of being a human being, despite the training and, and um, professional guidelines that are put in place. So I think if there was more transparency about the production, um, while still maintaining levels of objectivity, it would, again, increase people's trust in what you're doing. So there's certain journalists that I follow because I, I like the place that they're coming from and I like the honesty that they're sharing with what they're writing about. Um, and then it helps kind of, because um, you know where they're coming from, it helps you kind of um, create a filter between what they're saying and the reality um, rather than them just saying it's the truth, full stop. Um, and so, yeah, those, those are the things that I do personally, but there's a starter kit on my website and I would encourage everybody to kind of take their own version of what that looks like for them in whichever way it's helpful for them, but make sure it's, yeah, make sure it's being served for them rather than them serving the news industry. Great. Uh, and then, uh, finally, Jody, where do you see solutions journalism going over the next year or, or next couple of years? Um, I think it will continue in as much as um, there's more news organizations dedicated really to focusing on it. And it's creeping through into the mainstream news organizations over. I mean, in the US, you have the New York Times fixes um, and there's Yes Magazine. um, And in the UK, we have the BBC has a really good program, Crossing Divides. They also have... um, how do we fix it podcast, which is really great. And the guardian, you know, one of the biggest newspapers in the UK has the guardian upside, which again is a really good, um, it's a good platform for, for reporting on solutions. So it's, and I think it will continue to creep into the mainstream, but it's a slow process, but it's encouraging to see it happening. Right. And, uh, tell listeners your, your website again, one more time where they can find that starter kit and uh, more information about your book. Yeah, it's called youarewhatyoureed.com or there's jodyjackson.com as well, which we'll link through. Great. All right, um, Jody, thank you so much for joining us today on New Books in Journalism. Thank you so much for having me.